Good morning, Grace. It's a pleasure to be here with you worshiping. Thank you, Walt and praise team. Uh, my name's Eric Twisselman. I'm one of the elders here. I'm, I'm privileged to preach our, our kickoff sermon. Uh, one, one reason it's a privilege is I get to sit and, and, and listen to the worship set not once but, but three times and, and to participate in it. And I see something new each time that I don't know if it's on purpose but uh, on Walt's part, but, but uh, I just was struck this time by the water imagery that we have kind of running through uh, the songs we have. And water being this picture of abundance uh, a picture of grace, grace in abundance, grace multiplied, overflowing, and that is a central part uh, of the passage we have before us today in First Peter. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter one, we're starting off uh, a new preaching series in the, in the books of First and Second Peter, and if you were uh, fortunate enough to be with us last week, you were treated to an end-to-end recitation of the entire book of First Peter. Um, and I want to thank Timothy Pinkham for lending his, um, his tremendous gifts in, in uh, conveying that to us. I love being in a church where we unflinchingly uh, sit and listen to God's word uh, at length because there's real value in studying a book of the Bible in its entirety and hearing it and reading it in its entirety so we get context so that we can appreciate recurring ideas and themes that we don't always get when we go at it piecemeal uh, one verse at a time if that's all we do. So um, we're gonna be, uh, this morning we're gonna be uh, spending some time on chapter one, verses one and two, but then we're also going to look at the end of the book. So really we're bookending the book, okay? We're looking at the bookends. So we're also gonna be, if you wanna put your hand there, uh, chapter five, um, verses 12 through 14, because these give us a framework, an important theological framework through which to see uh, Peter's purpose and also uh, to sort of set up some recurring ideas, some ideas that we'll uh, see throughout the rest of the book. So, um, again, I've always wanted to do this, and, and could, could, could we do this? I wanna read the passage, but could we stand? I grew up, I, I grew up in a church that uh, Pastor Tom's, he was preacher for, for 40 years, and he would always have a stand, and he always said, well, let's stand in honor of God and his word, and that's always stuck with me, and a, a couple of people actually said something about that this morning, and I thought, that's, yes, that's all I need, just, that, here we go, and, and as you stand here listening, I want you to put yourself in the frame of mind of a first century Christian uh, in a church where they would stand to hear the reading of God's word. Peter's letter arrives from Rome and it's read and it's for, it's, it's for you and it's for us. And so as you stand there, follow along, listen, this is for you, this is for me. I'm reading from the ESV. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then skipping ahead to the, to the very end. 
By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Christ, we come before you. We adore you. We've been singing uh, worship songs and praise songs about your marvelous grace that is abundant to us. I pray that your word would, uh, as you promised, not return void, that it would encourage our hearts even as we stand in a society that uh, more and more is becoming hostile to Christianity, to us as Christians, as believers, and to the cross of Jesus Christ. Encourage our hearts in it. Help us to stand firm. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were here last week, we, you got a, an overview uh, of the book as a whole. Just we, we uh, recited through it. Well, that is Timothy Pinkham recited through it. We followed along. And uh, if, if you're like me, you're sitting there thinking, wow, what an amazing book full of practical theology. There is so much in this book that, that answers so many of the how-tos of life, right? What, what, what should we do? Um, it might have sounded to some of you like a good thing. It might have sounded to some of you like not so good, like, oh, this is a big to-do list. This is hard. And so you might have come this morning uh, on, on, the, on the heels of that, wondering, wow, yeah, these things are in my mind. How do, how, do I, how do I know that the Bible is true, that the testimony is faithful? How do I know um, how to give an answer to those who ask me for a reason for the hope that's in me? How do I defend my faith? How do I grow in my faith? How do I live in the church? How do I live in submission to one another? How do I face injustice in the world, in the workplace, perhaps even in my own family? How do I bear up under suffering and persecution? How do I get rid of the anxiety that I feel constantly plagued by? How do I stand against the devil? All of these questions, Peter, uh, delves into and gives us answers. But this morning we're looking at the bookends of the book because in those bookends we have an th- important theological framework that is going to help us with those things when we come to them. So what I wanna do this morning is I wanna give you some brief background introduction to the book uh, and then go through five things that I think come out of these verses we've just read. Five important theological truths we have to be encouraged by if the rest of the book is going to be more than just a to-do list. Because what's true in the book of Peter is the same as in in, in the epistles written by Paul. When they give us instructions and things to do, we, we ignore at our peril those opening passages where they declare first who we are. 
We need to understand who we are. And to understand rightly who we are, we need to understand what God has done for us. And then we can look at the to-do lists, quote unquote. All right. The author, Peter, an apostle, a sent one from Jesus Christ. I love that we're reading uh, Peter's epistles following right on, on the heels of our series through Mark, the Gospel of Mark. If you were to take uh, Jesus out of the Gospel of Mark or Matthew for that, re- uh, for that matter, you would come to the conclusion that, that it's all about Peter. He is such a central figure. And we're drawn to him, aren't we? Or at least I am. I'm drawn to him because he's such a failure half the time or more. Right? He's a man of contradictions, of, of extremes. On the one hand, uh, you know, he's, he's giving the right Sunday school answer. Yes, you are the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the chosen one, and the next moment he's being rebuked as, as an agent of Satan. He's, he's saying, no, 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 you can't wash my feet, Rabbi, that, that's, that's beneath you. And then does a 180 and says, no, give me a sponge bath, all over, man. He's the one who boasts, I will never leave you. I will follow you unto death. And he even, for good measure, just to to show he was serious, whips out that sword, slices a man's ear off in the garden, only to deny his Lord three times and swearing like the sailor he is the whole way. I love the fact that Peter is writing this book because he has tasted the abundant grace of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we think that of Peter, and hopefully we, we don't merely think of him as a failure. We, we fast forward to the end, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. Uh, hopefully you're familiar with that passage, but it's when Jesus has risen from the dead and he confronts Peter and he asks him three times, do you love me? It's his reinstatement and Peter keeps saying, yes, you know I love you. He's kind of getting irritated. And maybe he asked three times because G- uh, Peter denied him three times. We're not sure but he gives Peter these marching orders. Peter, tend my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my flock. This is the Peter who speaks of shepherding later on in the book. And another passage that is precious to me is in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32. And we often, when we think about uh, Peter's denial being predicted, um, if you're like me, I, I, I often forget this one and I love to be reminded by this one. Jesus didn't only predict that Peter would fail. Jesus also predicted that Peter would turn back. And, and that's what he uh, says in Luke 22, verses 31 through 32. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. When you turn back, why? Because I've prayed for you. Everything Jesus did was on purpose. Uh, That was a lesson that landed on my heart through the the, the heart of Mark. Everything Jesus did was not by accident, it was on purpose. And even beyond 
his death, burial, and resurrection, he knew the role that Peter would have to encourage his brothers, to feed the flock. And here we have Peter writing this letter, a letter that would live on for almost two millennia now and can encourage our hearts. What an abundance of grace we have. The audience. Uh, clearly we've got uh, some, some, some regions in the world that maybe we're not familiar with and uh, you know, if you've got a map in your Bible you might flip back there but here's the obligatory map uh, where these places are located and the thing that struck me about this map, it was the only one that I could find that, that, that could fit, um, is that the two prominent places uh, that, that would feel like where the action is are completely out of the map. Okay, so here, here you've got these places that are described and uh, you see Syria to the bottom right corner there. You gotta head south for a ways before you get to Jerusalem. And if you want to, to, to see where Rome is, you can just barely see the, the heel of the boot of Italy there on the left hand uh, and, and, and that's Rome, the center of the empire where Peter is writing from around 63, 64 AD. And so these are a people who are dispersed. Um, and commentators are, are uh, they argue over, well, is the audience primarily Jewish or is it primarily Gentile? There's actually interesting arguments on both sides and I don't have time to get into that. Um, but, but minimally, there are a lot of Old Testament references, uh, people and places and events and Old Testament stories and these people on the, on the fringes here are being brought into that and it's for encouragement and this idea of exile and there at the end, we, we see that word Babylon, Babylon, that's code. That is code for Rome, right? Babylon in the Old Testament was the great wicked city where Israel was exiled and now we've got this great godless empire, Rome, that Peter is writing from that nevertheless has a church. So what is the purpose that Peter has in writing this book his purpose is to encourage, to encourage these elect exiles, these saintly strangers and aliens to stand firm in the grace of Jesus Christ in a world that's becoming increasingly hostile to followers of Jesus. This is a time in history where this new religion, this new sect of, of Judaism, uh, for a while they were just kind of, oh, aren't they, aren't they interesting? Now they're becoming downright antisocial. And, and perhaps they're starting to be seen as a threat to the stability of the empire, of this way of life. So, what does this book have for us today in the United States, in La Mirada? I wanna go through five big ideas. I wanna cover five big ideas that I think run through the verses that we've read just now, but that I also think uh, we hear repeated throughout the book. And um, before I do that though, I do, I do want to uh, uh, address what for some of you might be an elephant in the room, and that's the first word in the title that I've chosen for this sermon, elect. Elect, exiled, and encouraged. And we have in this 
first couple of verses, God's election, foreknowledge. We see this idea of being chosen over and over. And uh, some of you might have a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to that word elect. So right now, uh, I'd like to distract you with some pop culture. Um, what, who can tell me what all of these personas, these larger than life personas have in common? They are the chosen ones, right? Yeah, yeah, apparently Rob Schneider, I'd go, I don't know, I, I Googled that and apparently he made a movie called The Chosen One that I did not see and I imagine you also did not watch, but he was, he was a chosen one. He's dangling by his tie, so he's kind of this reluctant, okay? Now, here's what I've noticed about this, uh, I don't know, this trope, this meta-narrative of, of a chosen one, okay? Uh, laying aside for the fact that these are really poor imitations of a, of a real Messiah, okay? That's not where I'm going here. Where I'm going is, uh, there comes a pivotal moment in the story, whether it's scripted or not, okay, in the case of uh, LeBron James and the NBA Finals, although some people think that that's scripted too. Um, Yeah. Uh, There comes a pivotal moment and, and, and the fate of humanity, the fate of the universe, the fate of Lego Town, or the fate of the NBA Finals hinges on something. And it's simply this. Will the chosen one realize that he or she is chosen? That's weird, isn't it? That, that something as simple as a, huh, I am the chosen one would have such a profound impact on the fate of a people, of a world, and anything else. So you're gonna notice that these five statements I have chosen all begin with this idea of being chosen. Now I've spent probably more time than it is healthy to have studied, debated, Restudied and redebated the whole question of election and predestination and every ins and out. As a Biola undergrad, you know, I was saturated with it. And, and I have to confess, I did it with far more arrogance and, and bravado than is appropriate a disciple of Jesus. And I know that in a church this size, we have people coming from all different theological stripes. But here's what I want to f- focus on. Here's the thing I think we can all agree with based simply on the simple reading of the text in Peter and and seeing the way Paul does it. Whether you are leaning Calvinist or Arminian, whether you lean, whether your background is Wesleyan or Reformed, the fact is that when Peter repeats this idea of being chosen, when Paul goes to great lengths to talk about being chosen, it is always for the encouragement of the reader. It is always for our encouragement. And if we want to be encouraged, we have to accept that message as it was intended. 
And it might be difficult. I know sometimes it is difficult to accept God's word. Uh, We know intellectually it must be true, but sometimes our hearts are hard to follow. But we've gotta keep battering away. So, let's get into these uh, five big ideas. And they all start with, we were chosen. We see in these verses, that's repeated, we were chosen. And in the middle of the book, it talks about we were chosen because Christ was chosen, right? Number one, we were chosen by God through the Holy Spirit to be set apart, that is sanctified, in the world. We were chosen to be set apart. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are to be holy as he is holy. And this automatically makes us exiles. No matter where we are, Even if we were living in Jerusalem, even if we were living in Rome, we would still be exiles. Stephen McAlpin is a minister from Australia and he blogs and he writes and he's been reflecting on this idea of exile over the last year and he writes some powerful pieces I would strongly encourage anyone to read. And he says that Christians in the West, he's been observing a kind of exile for decades now And he says that what he has come to realize is that the nature of our exile is changed. And a lot of us haven't recognized that yet. He says we've thought for the longest time that we've been living in a modern day equivalent of Athens. Okay, that our exile is in Athens. You think of Athens, the Areopagus, right? Where Paul goes to debate with with the Greek scholars the Greek philosophers, because they love hearing new ideas. Oh, yes. And so if we can just win a seat, if we can just gain the intellectual credibility of the world, they will give us a hearing. And then we will be able to share the gospel. And McAlpin is warning us that those days might have passed already if they haven't and they, they, they might, may have passed already uh, or they, they soon will. Rather, we are not living in a neutral culture. He says, no, the exile that we are in is more like the exile that Peter was talking about. That is, we are in a Babylon. What's the difference? He says, unlike Athens, Babylon is not interested in trying to outthink us, merely overpower us. And he goes on to say, that means merely doing apologetics and figuring out new ways of doing church won't cut it. Courage under fire will. And it has to be a certain kind of courage. It has to be the kind of courage we saw in Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to stare into the face of an enraged king. They know we will not bow down. Thank you very much. We will not worship your idol of gold even though we're the only three people still standing. So, we have been chosen to be set apart and sanctified in the world. That sounds scary. It's scary to me. Let's be honest, that sounds scary. But look how often Peter talks about not fearing throughout the book. We'll look more at that, I hope. I'm sure we will. What is it that drives out the fear? 
this recurring idea we were chosen. This stuff isn't happening by accident. Things are not out of God's control and we have to remember that. We need to preach that to ourselves and one another. Number two, we were chosen by God so that we could obey Christ. Now hold on, did Peter really say that? Well yes, yes he did. That, doesn't that sound a little, that sounds not very Protestant. I mean, wasn't the whole point of the Old Testament to prove that we couldn't obey? The, the, the law was a tutor to, to force us to the cross and despair of ourselves and say we can't do this. Now you're saying that we were chosen so that we could obey Christ? Well, yes, Peter says this, and Paul does too, right? We like to quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We often miss verse 10, okay? Chosen for good works. See, here's the difference between Christianity and other religions. Just about every other religion believes that you are chosen because you obey. Jesus says, you were chosen, and therefore you will obey. And we've gotta get this right. We've got, we can't put the cart before the horse. That, and that's leading up to the, to, to the third point here. Yes, we were chosen to follow and obey Christ. How can we possibly do this? <laughs> How can we, like Peter, flawed, given to violent extremes in behavior uh, and, and thought and, and, and unfaithfulness, how can we possibly do this? Number one and two sound really, really hard. Sound like bad news. Well, guess what? Number three, number three is the gospel. We were chosen by God so that we could be covered by his blood. Peter says, for sprinkling, for sprinkling. Now that sounds very odd, to be sprinkled with blood, and we might just give it a pass, but what is Peter activating here? The sprinkling of blood, it should send us back into Leviticus, the Old Testament, right? Blood was sprinkled everywhere in the worship of Yahweh. The tabernacle and all of its implements, the altar, everything had to be sprinkled liberally with the blood of bulls and goats. Why? Because even those things that God had given such detailed instructions to make had been made by hands tainted by sin and they had to be purified and they had to be consecrated. And in chapter eight, verse, uh, near the end, verse 30, we see that even the priest, even the high priest Aaron himself and his sons who were chosen by God for this office, they had to be sprinkled had to be sprinkled with blood so that God would accept their sacrifices, so that God would accept them as mediators of this covenant. So listen to what Peter is saying. Saying, look, you have been chosen for sprinkling but this sprinkling was a once and for all sprinkling. This is not the sprinkling that has to be done now every time we sacrifice a goat or a lamb. This is a once and for all sprinkling. 
As the writer of Hebrews says, we, our consciences have been sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ. That is such an odd thing to think about, especially if you are a parent like I am and you have ever had to deal with blood sprinkled, as it seemed, everywhere because it was issuing forth from some orifice on your child. Blood's messy, but it's what puts us right with God. It's what closes that gap between God and man. And so if you came here this morning thinking, okay, I'm gonna get some practical theology, I'm gonna learn how, what I should do, what should I do? That's important, we have to ask that question. But first we need to ask, what has Christ done for me? Because it's only in light of what Christ has done for me that me doing anything for Christ makes any sense whatsoever. So we're covered by his blood, and that is the good news. That is the good news. We stand guilty before a holy, righteous God, and any one of our smallest sins deserves our death and our punishment, and he requires life for life exchange. That's what justice is, right? That's what justice demands. Justice means making things right, balancing the scales back to where they should have been, and only Jesus could restore that. And the good news is, it's free. It's free. Number four then, what does this give us? We're chosen by God so that we could receive grace and peace in abundance. Grace and peace in abundance. I love that we've been singing so much about grace this morning. It's been just laced in uh, with all of the songs and and, uh, the prayers. Alistair Begg puts it this way, if we have grace and peace, we have everything we need. Such a simple statement, that's, that's kind of the, the terminus of his, his big preamble of the letter, grace and peace, you're like, oh, okay. okay get, get me to the practical stuff. The grace and the peace are the practical. The grace is what we need, not just for the forgiveness of sin, not just for the purification from sin, but also the consecration in order to free us, to free our consciences, and to give us the strength, the power, the ability that uh, only the Holy Spirit supplies to do the will of Christ. That's the importance of grace. And peace, isn't that what everybody wants? Not just peace free from conflict, You can have peace even if there is conflict. If you feel conflicted, you can still paradoxically feel at peace. And if you know exactly what what I'm talking about, you've been in in a season of life where you felt harassed by the world and yet you were at peace somehow and it it blew your understanding away. It It surpassed all human understanding. And this grace that he emphasizes at the beginning in his greeting and comes back to at the end. It's also nestled in the middle. I just real quick go to chapter four, verse 10. Peter says, each one should use whatever gift, and that word is the same root that means where we get grace. 
Each one should use whatever gift or grace he has received to what? To serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. This grace in abundance that is multiplied is so full. It's not just what we need, it's more than we need. It's more than sufficient. And so imagine us being poured into, poured into so that we are overflowing. There is so much grace that God wants us to spill it over into the lives of other people. He wants us to make use of the grace, not just sit on it, but but to share with others in the church, in love, and peace. If we have peace with God, what else could be wrong, right, with us? Peace with our maker, with the ruler of the universe. Can you imagine that? It blows my mind to think about that. To be on peaceful terms with a holy, righteous God who sees all my flaws, who sees every failing, every wrong, sinful, ugly, wicked thought. I am on peaceful terms with him. Peace to you all in abundance. And so finally, we were chosen by God so that we could become part of a family that is greater than any nation. It's greater than Babylon, it's greater than Rome, it transcends geography, race, culture. I love the, the message that uh, Junior uh, led us to the Lord's table uh, with last, last Sunday, where he talked about what, what could possibly rally such different people all together in one room, singing the same songs, praising in, in joyful harmony, what could do that on earth to, 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 to a, a magnitude far greater than any NBA team can muster? And that's Jesus Christ. That's being part of God's family. Look, in the, look at the end of the passage. Look at the family words that just jump off the page. Sylvanus, a, what, a faithful brother, I regard him. Mark, my son. And then we have his conclusion. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, some of you are getting uncomfortable. I'm not that kind of preacher. I'm not that one who's, all right now, turn to your neighbor, okay? Some of you turn to your neighbor right away. As soon as I read that, and well, he's, he's kind of fetching. I went, you can always hope. Um, this, this, is a, this is culturally conditioned somewhat, okay? Now, but with that said, we offer that, wow, that's cultural. Just because it's cultural doesn't mean we can ignore it. Can we, can I, can we say that, brothers and sisters? Just because it's something cultural in the Bible, well, that was just cultural. We tend to want to then dismiss it. Uh, I think we do that at our, at our peril. We've got we've to pay attention. Uh, a kiss in the ancient you know, Near East and in places in the world still today, a, a, a kiss is just a, a, a greeting between people who are friends, family. It's a close warmth, 
uh, a greeting. Uh, it, it's more than just a handshake. It's at least a hearty handshake. Maybe a two-fisted handshake. And I know we're all in different places on this. You know, uh, some of us are are you know, more or less comfortable with close body contact and that kind of a thing. Wherever we are, let's, let's show grace to one, or one another on that, but, but, but let's be warm. Let's treat each other like family because we are family, right? I had, had Rick Floyd on the, on the overhead. You know, Rick is a, is a force of nature. If, if you've ever been gotten treated to one of his hugs, it, it is, he, he's a category five hugger, okay? <laughs> Uh, I'm maybe a category three, maybe. <laughs> Depends on the day. Um, wherever you are in that continuum, <laughs> handshake, high five, hug, let's, let's be warm with one another. Let's, let's welcome each other, and not just each other, let's welcome strangers, people who are visiting. Let's greet them. Peter, big shot Peter, right? Rock, over in Rome. He's writing to us, and he's saying hi from these two guys that we've heard about. One of them wrote a gospel. Wow, we're all part of that. And we should have the grace to let that gift that we've been given overflow into the lives of others. So I wanna conclude with two simple questions. I like to keep the questions simple, the takeaways simple. So again, this shouldn't be a a do more sermon. This should be a, we should be encouraged sermon. First question, are you standing firm in the true grace of Christ? Am I standing, ask yourself that question. Am I standing firm right now, right now? When you came to church, you brought things from your week or from your morning you might even, throughout this sermon, been kind of checking in and out and thinking about things uh, later on in the week. I have. <laughs> but what are the, let's be honest, so it happens. Being a little facetious. Uh, but, but when we walk out those double doors, what is, what is that thing that's gonna leap to mind immediately? Right? That thing on your plate, that thing that's causing anxiety. What is it that's causing you to feel harassed by the world? What is it that's causing you to feel like an exile? An exile in the culture, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe at your place of work, maybe in your own family, and maybe even in your own body. We are strangers, we are exiles, but we need to stand fast in the grace of Christ. Let's meditate on that this week. Am I standing fast? That's a great heart question check. Am I standing fast? And if I'm not, why am I not? My second question is this, are you being encouraged by what Christ has already done for you? Are you being encouraged by what Christ has already done for you? If you're not standing fast in the grace of Christ, it's probably because you are not being encouraged by what Christ has already done for you. And this is not something you can just muster by yourself, right? We've all been there. 
Be encouraged, okay? It's like when I yell at my kids, have, be patient. Oh, thank you, Father. <laughs> yes, you've made things clear to me. I just need to be patient. Mm. Got it. Goodbye. How do we do that? We just need to be honest, right? We need to be honest with God. We need to throw ourselves before him and say, Lord, just start there. God, I know, I'm should, I, I know I should be encouraged by your word this morning, and I'm not. And you know that already. My kids listen to a song. It's called Tell It to Jesus. He already knows. Tell it to Jesus. He already knows. Tell it to Jesus before it grows. Start there and ask him to meet you. Ask him to show you the amazing love and grace that he has poured out for you in Christ by his shed blood. And if you don't know Christ, if you don't know Christ, this is exactly where you would start. It's not like everybody sitting here, oh, we were these super people, you know, we've got it all figured out. That's, that's where we all started. If we're in Christ, that's where we all started. So maybe today could be the, the day for you. So are you standing firm in the grace of God and are you being encouraged by what Christ has already done for you? Let's meditate on that as we are encouraged by this letter from Peter. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the fellowship we have through the Holy Spirit in Christ. We thank you so much for what Christ has done for us, that he has chosen us Lord, it's something amazing to be called chosen. And we're in awe of it, and we can't explain it, but we trust it, and we believe it, and we claim it. And we want your grace to empower us. We want your peace to abide in us so that we can love one another well, and so that we can have abundant life even in the midst of exile. Father, will you do these things in Jesus' name, amen.